You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray and we'll get started. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to listen to your word. We thank you for the gift and the privilege that you haven't left us alone. Forgive our sins. We need your forgiveness afresh today and show us our need for you and Give yourself to us afresh as as your word opens. Send your spirit to make much of Jesus right now. In your name we pray. Amen. We're in week two, and this has a kind of a fancy title. It's Paul's Theology of the Old Testament in Genesis. And um, last week we talked about the fact, we looked at Paul's sort of biography as it's laid out in the scriptures. And one of the things we noticed in Galatians Paul sort of fills out this time where after his conversion, he didn't just jump right into ministry. There's actually this gap of a few years where Paul kind of goes silent. But he gives us a few hints, especially in Galatians 1, that something went down during those years. Paul gives us a hint because afterwards, as he starts his public ministry, when he's writing these letters, these epistles, he uses this language again and again, for I received from the Lord... I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. You and I hear it most frequently in the communion liturgy, right? When we hear what's typically called the words of institution. For I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, etc., etc. Paul has this phrase because something about these missing years includes him having some Bible studies with Jesus. Now, wouldn't you like to have Bible studies with Jesus, but instead you're stuck with me, and I'm sorry for that. But one of the valuable things about we learn from the, the scriptures and remember is that Paul, prior to knowing Jesus, was, it, was the day's Old Testament scholar. I don't know if that's in our heads, but because he was a Pharisee and a mighty good one, he was a theologian of the first rank. He was a guy steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. Those were his his babies. He knew them well. And so when Jesus comes along, Jesus schools Paul, filling out the knowledge that he already has. And it's almost like Paul, having studied those scriptures for years, has a light bulb go off. And this light bulb is what Jesus said to Cleopas and the other person in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, which was, this is all about me. He exegetes the law and the prophets and says, this is all about me. And once Paul has that kind of mind-blowing recognition that everything he studied is really all about Jesus, it's almost like you could imagine him going back over everything he's learned and retooling it in and around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the reason we know this is so is because he's doing this theological work in his epistles. If you read his epistles through the lens of Paul being an Old Testament scholar, you realize as he's handling the scriptures, before you as he's writing these occasions letters to these people in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth, that he's bringing forth and exegeting, big word, for studying and exposing the study of the Old Testament. And so what we've been focusing on is Paul's use of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Interestingly enough, you know, we're post-scientific revolution and therefore you think that maybe we're going to be talking about like days of creation and whether they're literal six days or whether they're, whether there's an old earth or young earth, but Paul doesn't spend any time there. In fact, his interests in Genesis are around two key figures, Abraham, which we're not getting into, and Adam, which today we are getting into. And I think it's going to have a lot of payout. Last week, 
we uh, made the first point of three points, and today we're going to make the second and third of three points. Last week we said creation and salvation work the same way. And we pointed out that when Paul looks at Genesis, especially chapter 1, with God speaking creation into existence, God does the same kind of work. It's the same kind of work when he saves you and me. And it's really important to understand is that when God speaks, he uses his word to save you. And we looked at the example of how this plays out in an episode like Jesus and the raising of Lazarus. Jesus didn't do some magical incantation or put some potions together. He used the word. And we learned that God does things by speaking. That's how he does things. He doesn't speak and then minions come and do it. It's actually the word goes forth and it does it. Which is pretty powerful if you think about the fact that when you and I gather around the word every week in worship and we hear statements like this, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Or you hear a declaration like, in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. God's not declaring a possibility. Just like creation, he's actually making it so in the word. That's pretty powerful if you think about it because it's dependent upon the work of God not necessarily on you, except that when God does that, just like Lazarus came out of the tomb with his deaf, dead ears, um, just like Lazarus came out of the tomb upon that word, so you and I resurrect to life when we hear the word, it is finished. When we hear the word, there is no condemnation. Now today, we want to point out, because point one was creation and salvation work the same way. The other aspects of Paul's exegeting Genesis are, point two, The fall was not only an event, it becomes the way life works. The fall was not only an event, it was the way life works. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture, so move with me. Open up to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 12. And I'm definitely cherry-picking, but we need to realize that Paul wrote letters, which means it's best to read these things from start to finish together. But in order to be able to bring out these themes in a short amount of time. We're looking at discrete passages of Scripture. But listen to what Paul says about and how he talks about Genesis, how he talks about creation, how he talks about sin in the fall in Adam. Romans 5, 12 to 20. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, first off, Paul is saying that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you and I sinned in him. In more fancy theological language, often what's used is Adam has become our federal head. In him we sinned. And you know what? So, immediately, you and I have the same reaction. And we're going to talk about the flesh in a little bit. But you and I have the same reaction. Maybe if I were there instead of Adam, it wouldn't have happened. Maybe if I were there. And one of the things Paul is saying here is, as I exegete Genesis, if you were there, you would have done exactly the same thing. There is not one of us, especially if you rewind Romans back to Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Their mouths are open. Great. Just absolute nobody. What this base is saying, you could have put any one of us, the best person ever, the person who wins the most Nobel Peace Prizes or the person who's the most virtuous person you could think of and put them in the garden that day and they would have done the same thing. 
But the reality is because we all come from the line of Adam in his genetics, we all sinned in him because we were somehow, you know, family tree buried up in him when he did that. So he did it for all of us. But we can also say very clearly, there's no other answer than I would have done it too. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now he's starting to actually go into Exodus when he's saying Moses came around and Moses received the law. I've been reading this pa- these passages in Exodus where Moses is going up on the mountain for the first time as I'm preparing for my sermon in a few weeks on the transfiguration and Moses' parallel there. But he's saying before that event, sin was already in the world. But sin is not counted where there's no law. So one of the things that Paul's going to point out later, and this is a separate discussion, but it has to do with the fact that the law of God exposes sin. You know, there's kind of an ignorance to not knowing right and wrong until a law says this is right and this is wrong. You know, we do have the law written on our hearts, but as Romans 1 says, we're kind of suppressing it in unrighteousness. But the law declares clearly above all our suppression This is right, this is wrong. But sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, even before that law came, verse 14 says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So people were still dying. There were consequences. There's a result to this sin that we all sin. And that result is everybody dies. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. That's significant because Paul is going to begin to do a comparison here. And Paul says, when I read Genesis, I see someone who was, and he uses a word type. Now, this is kind of like a symbolic figure that demonstrates another figure that's coming. Okay? And this language of type gets used as well in the book of Hebrews. He pauses there go, and starts to talk a little bit of salvation stuff. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, he's talking about us now. If, if we all died because of his transgression, which we were all bound up in, and which we all would have done, lest we forget, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Oh, there it is. So Paul's saying Adam was a type of another to come. You see, Paul's pitting an old Adam and a new Adam. The old Adam was the person we've been talking about, the one in whom we all sinned. But there is another second Adam, the new Adam, who has come through whom, though death abounded in the old Adam, grace comes through this new Adam. That's the paradigm here. And the free gift is not like the result of that one sin. Listen to this good news. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Old Adam, death, condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. New Adam, life, grace, justification. For if because of one man's trespass, verse 17, death reigned through that one man, Adam, death, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteous of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ okay so there's adam and then there's jesus therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners you and me so by the one man's obedience the many were made will be made righteous 
Now the law, okay, uh, now the law came in to increase the trespass in the sense of it's exposing the sin and often exciting it, as Paul will say elsewhere. The law actually makes you want to sin more because you see it clearly. And we'll talk about the flesh in a second. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, praise God, grace increased all the more. So right now, just pause. I'm going to preach for a little bit. But if you're feeling like a sinner who's run too far from God and you're running fast, God's grace, according to Paul, always runs faster than you can run away from God. And that's good news for people who feel like, you know, I've committed the unpardonable sin or I've done the thing that maybe no human is going to forgive me. So why can I expect the forgiveness of God? And God's grace abounds all the more. You feel like you're running from God deep down or you feel like someone else is. They're not too far because God's grace is faster. God's grace has better shoes. God's grace has better muscles and he will run faster. So hanging on to that, we can centralize all of human history according to Paul's read of Genesis around two figures, Adam and Christ. Now think about that. That should be your paradigm for existence. More than any of the science that you and I study, that's God's good truth. We should think of the framework of our life around these two figures, because that's what Paul says. Like, Think of the most cosmic, epic way of, of analyzing your life. I want you to think about old Adam and new Adam. Or I want you to think about first Adam and second Adam. That's how you should construe your life. And I'll show you in a little bit just how much grounding this has. But turn with me to Romans 3. Verse 9. What then are we... Jew- He's been dealing with an argument between about Jews and Gentiles because Jews were prone in Paul's day to think that because they were the chosen people, they had the upper hand and favor with God. And so Paul's kind of, as a Jew himself, as an exegete of the Old Testament, dismantling that and leveling the playing field. And so he says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And here it is. He's quoting from the Psalms and he's reminding us because of the fall, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have have turned aside. I mean, these are very absolute terms, Paul. No one? Yes, no one. All? Yes, all. Okay? So this is the result. As a result, as Paul reads Genesis, he says, Adam blew it for us and we all blew it in him. And the result is all. All of us are destitute. All of us have no hope within ourselves. Now turn with me to Romans 8. This doesn't just go to people, but it goes to the whole created order. Look at Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's so much going on there. But what we want to focus on with Paul's read of Genesis is that our bodies and the created order, nature, 
And even our ability to reason and think about and process nature, our philosophizing about the world, our reason, everything's been corrupted and is subject to, in Paul's language, futility. That's the depth of Adam's fall, okay? But this Adam and Christ comparison isn't only a historic and cosmic thing. It's a personal and individual thing. And this is where I hope that we can put feet on this and start thinking about our own lives. And I want to start by drawing a helpful diagram that is very useful in thinking about our existence as Christians in this paradigm of the old Adam and the new Adam. I'm going to draw two circles. This circle represents the old age or first Adam or old Adam. And I'm just going to name something that we'll read about a little bit later. Flesh. This is the age that you and I, that Paul's been speaking about. This is, as a result of the fall, what you and I are in. We're subject to this. This is what happens. But when Christ came, he broke in a new age. New Adam. And what Paul will often contrast with the flesh, spirit. Jesus. Sunday school answer. Old age, new age. Where this gets very useful to look at this diagram is that you and I are living in the football. This is the Christian life. When Jesus breaks into your life and the recreating announcement of forgiveness of sins comes to you, this new life, the spirit, the new Adam, breaks in, moves into your neighborhood, comes into you, and begins to do the work of heaven, of new life, of perfection, of holiness, of freedom, but it's not yet here all the way. And how do you know? Just live one day. You don't even need the Bible to tell you that, right? And it's funny, some Christians want to act like the paradigm is like this. Jesus came and I'm a butterfly now. I no longer am a caterpillar, you know? The, the new life is here. And what, what they tend to not acknowledge is that I'm still sort of sinning. I still have sin here. And I can't sort of, uh, I can't sort of righteousness my way into the new age with good deeds by the power of the Spirit yet. I can't break through this barrier or membrane. But the good news is I can't sin my way out of this new age that's promised and given to me in the Word of God because it's by God and not by me. This is the state of affairs. This football here is your and my life. It's why Martin Luther will use the language and say it's actually when the Spirit comes into your life for the first time that the true battle begins. And that the Christian life, even though, even though Paul says it is marked by a peace that passeth all understanding, it's also marked by perpetual tension and fighting. Why? Because the Spirit is at war with the flesh. And this is the old age that Paul says is dying. 
And this is the new age that Paul says is the inevitable future for all who believe in Jesus by the power of his word. But we're, we're in here right now. And so it's a confusing time because we hear these almost contradictory words from God. Like when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Then he also said the kingdom of God is not yet. He said this definitive word on the cross, it is finished. Your final judgment is secure. And yet I live in a world where I feel like, gosh, it's not finished because it's this sin is still remaining here. But Jesus says the verdict is solid and it's declared, it's happening, it will happen, it's in you, and yet I still sin. There's still some of this remaining. And so you read a passage like Romans 7, the quintessential explanation of this diagram. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I do do. The sin... You know, that I don't want to do, I end up doing. But the Spirit who tells me this is right, I want to do that. I feel the Spirit inside me saying this is right, and I can't seem to do it. Right? He's ex- describing this tension, this fight. This is the way it works. I want to talk about the flesh. Open with me to Ephesians 2. And, and we'll look again and again at this thing because it makes sense of everything by holding it in tension. And we don't want it in tension. We want it perfect. And it's not that way. But then you read language like this. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were once in this old world, dead, dying. This is the dying, dead part of you. And this time Paul uses absolute language to describe it. You were dead. You were dead in which you once walked following the pattern, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So in that realm, there are passions of the flesh that produce fruit. It's rotten fruit, but it's fruit. And and he'll describe that elsewhere. But turn with me to Galatians 5, where he describes some of this tension. Galatians 5. Verses 16 to 24. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And remember elsewhere he said, this is the, this is the part of you that's dying or that's dead. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Very Romans 70. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And this is where he lists the fruits of the flesh, right? And then he turns in verse 22, but he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, this word, the Spirit that's in you, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. So where did this die? The old world and you, your flesh, where did it die? On the cross. That you, that old Adam, was crucified with Jesus on the cross. He's dead, but as you and I experience life, he's still dying because the Spirit is doing war. And you never thought this about salvation, but salvation means God is committed to killing you. That doesn't sound nice, Zach. That's not very nice, God. 
But that's what God says I'm here to do. When I send my spirit into you, yeah, warm fuzzies, sure. But I also send my spirit in you to do war against this, this flesh. So what I want to do, and this is where it gets very practical. I want to pause here and offer some practical takeaways. I want to talk about the MO of the flesh or an anatomy of the old Adam and Eve. Ooh, hand drawings. Okay, that's giving you a picture of the deal. Look, there's a little knife with blood on it, all right? I'm getting graphic. I want to tell you maybe six things, and I chose the number six because it's devilish. Um, It's just how it ended up, but it's kind of cool. I think the Lord was in it. Uh, I want to give you six ways to understand yourself. If you sort of pull out Paul in this fall, in his exegesis of Genesis, this is what we learn about ourselves. You who are dying and dead, the old you, not the Christ in you and the spirit in you, but the old you, this is your description. So I'm speaking to you, old Adams and Eves. The one thing about the old Adam and Eve is that he and she is blinded to the magnitude of their sinful condition. Blinded to the magnitude. They're always sort of (coughs) short-selling just how sinful they are. You are short-selling just how sinful you are, old Adam and old Eve. You like to think better of yourself. Number two, because of that, you, old Adam and Eve, constantly downplay the severity of God's law. Because God's law tells you it's actually that bad. You've fallen that hard. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you may think you've been doing it with 90% of you, but that's not good enough. Perfection is my demand. And the old Adam and Eve hate that word. They hate the law of God. Why? Because they don't want to hear about their sinful condition. Why? Because the old Adam wants to stand on his own two feet. And so there's a part of you that absolutely wants to make God's law a little bit easier and attainable. Ironically, here's the irony. The Pharisees were people of the law, right? They were legalists. They were people trying to hold people to God's law. But what they were doing was actually lowering the demands of God's law so that it was attainable. Think about that. So the Pharisees actually had a lower view of God's law than God does, than Jesus did, which is why when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, you hear this language with whole new ears because you know who Jesus is preaching to at the Sermon on the Mount? The old Adam and the old Eve. He says, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to commit adultery, but I tell you, old Adam, if you have a lustful thought in your mind, you have committed it and you should be stoned kind of idea, right? Absolute, you've lowered the bar. And that's the way old Adam works. So if you want to get a good enfleshment of old Adam, look at the Pharisees. They did this really well. And Christians have been doing this ever since. Okay? Number three, the old Adam defaults to trusting himself or herself rather than suspecting himself or herself. The old Adam doesn't want to hear that I need someone else. I want to stand on my own two feet and I don't want to live a life of dependence. And this is a, wow. If you want a whole nation gathered around the old Adam's philosophy, America, United States, rugged individualism, right? We learned about it in our history classes. That's what makes us tick because we're independent people. Freedom from tyranny, right? I mean, that might be a great governmental philosophy, but that's also very much the MO of the old Adam. I don't depend on anybody. I've got, I can stand on my own two feet. So they default to trusting themselves instead of suspecting themselves. Number four, when confronted, she or he behaves like Adam and Eve in the garden. 
How did they behave? Deflection, blame, avoidance, covering of shame. Where can you see a lot of this old Adam before you and I develop wonderful devices and desires to cover it up? Children. Children. They're the filterless old Adam and Eve, right? When we get older, what maturation really is, is just developing great old Adam and Eve filters where we can cover this stuff up more easily. And then we develop pathologies and have to go to counseling for it, right? That's the way it works because the old Adam and Eve, when confronted, deflects, blames, because I don't want to hear that I have I have sinful condition because ultimately what that word is, is you're dead. You're dying and dead. And I don't want to hear that. I like my life, says old Adam and Eve, okay? Number five, the chief goal, therefore, can you, you start to see how these things all hang together? The chief goal of the flesh of old Adam and Eve is self-justification. This means that deep down at the core of every human being is this drive to justify ourselves somehow. And what self-justification ultimately is, is being a God to ourselves. I am justified. I, my existence is based on me. I made me. I do me. You do you. That's the old Adam and old Eve talking. Because the word of God to us is that you're dead and you need me. That's the gospel. You're dead and the gospel is you need me. And I give myself to you. Good news. But the old Adam doesn't like that order of things, which is why number six, the old Adam and Eve hates the gospel. So in you is this first circle, this flesh that is always looking to sort of get that gospel out of here. It's why Christians develop paradigms for judgmentalism and comparison and create cultures of legalism. Why? Because it's, it ultimately has to do with the, the flesh that doesn't like to die. And so what is this whole package of you. This is this is the old you that's dying. This is the old what is this what does this person need ultimately? Needs heavy doses of God's law to remind you of the truth that you're always wanting to close your ears to, right? Of the truth about your death and deadness. Because it's only when that law declares that deadness, I mean the only place for Christian growth and life is at the grave. This, the spiritual cemetery is the only location of Christian life and growth. It is at the graveside of old Adam, where Adam is declared dead, where Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. It is at the graveside of old Eve, where Jesus says, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And because when the word goes out, it does what it says. It resurrects you. That's the nature. And so what else does the old Adam and Eve need? The old Adam and the old Eve needs a salvation marked by a sharp contrast between their work and the work of God. Why? Because your flesh wants to own anything it can. And Throughout the course of your life, you're always going to be looking, the old Adam and old Eve is always going to be looking for a foothold to sort of say, yeah, it's God, but I did a little bit. Just stick your toe in there. And as soon as you do, what happens with the old Adam is he just bursts right into the room and starts like, look at how great I am. I'm such a wonderful Christian. 
I've done everything right. I haven't sinned in a long time. And you get theologies like I can sort of, I can sort of um, progress so much in my growth that this side of eternity, I can bust through the hole and be perfect. I, it's actually attainable because I have the Spirit. And so the old Adam is not only in the business of good works, but like creating new theology. New theology about the Spirit. That's all old Adam stuff. So old Adam affects everything from your daily behavior when you wake up to grand theological textbooks and treatises on sanctification. All those things. The old Adam is behind in a way. And so what does the old Adam need to hear? You're dead. You're dead. And what declares that? The magnitude and power of the holy law of God. You know, it's one of the reasons why right at the start of the communion service, we have this prayer, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Oh my gosh. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. Right? And then what do we do after that? We declare the law of God. <laughs> you shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart. Oh, old Adam loves that. Okay, I can do that. Nope, nope, nope. Sorry, all. Pinning, it's like at the beginning of the worship service, old Adam's being pinned against the wall so they can get murdered. Right? Said, old Adam can die. You like that image? Um, I, I know worship's not a very seeker-sensitive enterprise. And the Word of God, which is living and active, listen to this. When Hebrew said the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it's not some sort of warrior motif. Because what does it say the sword is there to do? Pierce joints and sinews? What was that? That's what swords did to cut up sacrifices in the Old Testament. What is God interested in doing to you, old Adam? Pinning you to the wall and severing all your limbs, okay? Why? Because it's only when Adam is dead, only at the graveside, where the ears of faith jump out because they're given. And so you look at this and we suddenly have a paradigm that explains an awful lot about our day-to-day life. The way we relate to our friends, roommates, co-workers, spouses, children, parents. We see kind of all dysfunction rooted here. And we could go on and on and do that, but I'm going to stop here because it's so tantalizing and I've gotten so extreme with knives and stuff like that. Uh, I think it's warranted because it's the Bible. But what are you processing right now? I love your enthusiasm. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I've never heard someone talk about death with so much passion. (laughs) Is old Adam and Paul as he writes? Well, he just describes him as Adam or the flesh. That was kind of the... He never uses the language old Adam, but that gets picked up in the way people reflect on him. And what I try to do is show that Paul's pitting Adam and Christ and saying that Adam was a type of the one to come. And that's not only a personal thing and a figure thing, it's actually the paradigm for you and me. It's not only a cosmic thing of old age, old earth and new earth, new creation, which is you know, why he says, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, anyone's in Christ, there is new creation. Because the old is gone and the new has come. This word is doing its work on you. And so a useful way that people have talked about is old Adam and new Adam, or old Adam, first Adam, second Adam. Um, Carolyn, we also talking about is, is old Adam actually in Paul as he's... Right. That's okay. what, that's oh, you're asking a different question. Okay, sorry. That's, among other things, Romans 7. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. So Paul exposes his own personal wrestling. Thank. Yeah. So in Romans seven, you hear the kind of wrestling of Paul as he's reflecting on this duality of his Christian existence, that my flesh is constantly in the spirit's warring. And thank God that God gives us the Holy Spirit to war against this flesh and to do that work, right? But yes, Paul's sort of exposing it. Definitely. That's right. And I don't even think he was trying that hard to be a model. I just think he was sort of confessing on paper and being honest, sort of laying it out there. This is the reality of things. And that's the beauty of confession is it often elicits it in other people because it it sort of puts old Adam on the table and then the rest of us feel like, oh yeah, that's me too. And so here we go. Hano. That just seems to be the most logical reason. Reading of Romans 7 and others. Romans 7 is is the voice of the... Non, That's right. And so, based on what we said, what do you think's behind that? Why would people want to go there? The flesh loves that theology, right? Anything to avoid hearing. I mean, I think there's something really spiritual behind those other theological understandings of Romans 7. Yeah. With this old Adam, new Adam thing, it might be useful to sort of compare and contrast the ways in which the two of those men came into the world. And I'm, I'm carefully not using the word created here because we know Jesus wasn't created. Right. With Adam, he molded him out of the clay of the ground and he blew life into his That's right. Okay, yeah. That's the Holy Spirit. Mary becomes overshadowed by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah. So neither of them technically is born of a woman. You know, it's 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 so these two men, each of whom walked the earth at one time, are different from. Any That's right. That yep, it's a good point. There's something, they're, they're something connected about these two men. Yeah. What else? Anything else? I mean, can, can you say something like, or help me kind of understand this? But you know, take, taking it, looking at the atonement, and you know, I mean, we're yes, we're the spirit, you know, slays our flesh, but you know, Jesus' flesh was actually. That's right. I mean, the, the law himself. Uh, yeah. The law and the prophets was you know, killed on the cross. That's right. Uh, there. Well, so this is the this the strange thing about the way Paul sort of uses and talks about time in his epistles. You know, we think of time on a line, and what Paul is saying is in in a place like Romans three, he's saying that at that cross, you and I actually died. That's where our flesh died. I am now declaring it to you in the future. That by virtue of that past act, your present now changes. And actually, the future final judgment is actually wrapped up. So it's like, think of a timeline with multiple points on that time kind of wrapped up onto one and cut through. What was that space movie where they were talking about being able to sort of warp through time because of the way the folds worked in the universe? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Sort of mind is one of those psychological thrillers. I uh, can't remember what it was, but it's it's kind of it's getting at that idea when Paul says, but now a righteousness of God. So a future justification by virtue of a past event on the cross. So there's something time screwy, but very real about the fact that as the spirit's doing war with my flesh, it's the very same thing that was crucified with Christ on the cross. So that Paul makes all these kind of crazy statements like I am crucified with Christ and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. 
right? So I don't, there's, it's not clean because time has folded in on itself by the power of the word. Yeah. All right. I'll see you next week. We're going to talk about the theology of Exodus and Leviticus where we get into the law. It'll be good. Peace. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.